When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. These two guys have Minnesota sports flowing in their veins. Mackie and Judd on Score North and scorenorth.com. Uh, boys, pe- people people get worked up when I tell the truth about Nelson Cruz. He's the greatest hitter in Twins history. You're going to die on that hill. Nelson Cruz is the greatest Twitter in the greatest hitter Twitter? in Twins history. No, you're the greatest you're Twitter. The greatest he's Twitter. good on, he's good Twitter, on Twitter, Twitter, too. He's good on Twitter, too. Put on a big really thank is. you. No, you, you don't really believe he's the greatest hitter in Twins history, do you? He has the highest OPS of, of, of all Twins hitters with at least 1,000 plate appearances. His OPS is almost 100 points higher than anybody else. Harmon Killebrew, Rod Carew, Kirby Puckett. Like, it's like 200 points higher than, like 150 points higher than Kirby Puckett. I know that Puckett played in yeah. World Series. I'm, that's Listen, the front office put together better rosters in the early 90s. Nelson Cruz got screwed because these guys have Jay Happ in the rotation. Give the, Put some respect on Nelson, well, Cruz's like Nelson Cruz's tenure with the Minnesota oh, I Twins. I do. Yeah. I do. But Rodney Klein Carew, sports dad will tell you right now, is the greatest hitter in Twins history. It's not Puckett. That's great. Rodney Klein Carew wasn't facing the same type of pitching, the same level of pitching. Still an unbelievable um, it's great. He, yeah, it's, congratulations. Unbelievable he could, you know, He's best here in he, Twins he, he could hit a ball to the outfield uh, and hit singles. Uh, Nelson Cruz has 340 home runs after Listen the Listen to you. 30. He could hit singles. Condescending to Rod Carew, <laughs> a Hall of Fame player. Unbelievable. Is this I will, how you want to start your Friday? Right. Is this how you want to start your Friday? I just want to say, like, I, I'm trying to, okay, maybe my tongue is pressed slightly in my And we have not gotten this, in a but, fight in a long time. So, I mean, this might be fun. But I just want to say I feel like the Nelson Cruz era has sort of passed by because mm-hmm. we had the weird pandemic season last year. There were no fans, and then the Twins got off to just a nightmare start this year, and people disengaged. So it's like all of a sudden you, you wake up, and it's been three years of Nelson Cruz, and he's now he's going to go play for the Rays and maybe win a championship. Uh, and I'm rooting for that to happen now. I want that guy to win a ring, and I want – yeah. I want Tampa to to pay it off. Yes, but I, I I don't know if I don't know if we fully appreciate the greatness that we witnessed for three years. Like what we thought was great with Jim Tomey, which was mm-hmm. Nelson Cruz was better, more impactful, and did it even further into his forties okay. than Jim Tomey did. And so um, while I do think it's interesting that his OPS as a twin is almost a hundred points higher than Harmon Killebrew's. Facing pitchers throwing ninety seven and better movement and using sticky stuff the last three years, right? Like the numbers he's putting up are absurd at the age he's at. I think my general point is I I feel like this amazing hitter was just in front of us for three years and it was like, Oh yeah, Nelson Cruz. No, 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 no. 
This was one of the greatest three-year stretches of offense in Twins history. And the, and the, in, in the third year, anyways, the front office couldn't put anything around him to, to give him a stretch run. So. The, th- the first thing that comes to mind is this. I in no way, shape, or form want to insult Nelson Cruz. Hmm. What, no, what he's doing, what is he did, and what he no, what he's doing and what he did is and was phenomenal. The man just turned 41 on July 1st, and we are still talking. Uh, we're still talking about, hey, you want to come back next year? So, like, in, he, in, I hope he does. Well, but that's my point is there is no reason, just because I do not believe that your possible tongue-in-cheek but sort of serious statement about him being the best hitter in Twins history is accurate, I also don't want this to become uh, I'm bashing him. What he did was great. Now, let me try and sort out what you're saying because I think it's an interesting point, but I'm going to – I think I'm going to end at a place where, Phil, you do and I do a lot in Twins conversations. First of all, I think in 2019, there was an enormous appreciation for what he he brought in the clubhouse and at the plate. Um, He clearly led the Bomba squad, which, yes, the ball was juiced, but your team still hit 307 home runs, which is a Major League Baseball record. So, like, there's no— The the ball was juiced for everybody. Yeah. And he was the king of the— Exactly. So there's no putting that down as if, well, that's a fluke. It was impressive. Um, And I think we all did, and the fan base did, really appreciate what he brought. So I don't think that got underplayed or undersold. The pandemic definitely affected last year, and— you know, heck, no fans in the stands. And then this year has been a just unmitigated, as Stephen A. would say, disaster. But here's where I think we run into a little bit of a problem, and this is not Cruz's fault necessarily, but it's definitely something that we always talk about, which is you brought him here in 2019, partially, you know, go back to then, you guys, to mentor Miguel Sano. I mean, that was part of, of the goal. And in 2019, one could argue he did a nice job there. And actually yeah. probably got more production. But we are also talking about a team that with Cruz in his first two years here won back-to-back American League Central titles, right? Which was, again, great. And still didn't win a playoff game. And so I think that's where like the luster comes off a lot of Twins things. Which is, Nelson Cruz, great season, now the playoffs start. And so, I, I, so I'm not going to crap on people for just in general, not just with Cruz. For losing their enthusiasm for this franchise, because when push comes to shove and it's it's go time, right? Like it's it, it's playoff time, Phil Mackey. Let's go out there and you know you don't do a thing offensively, which they didn't. You start, and this is not Cruz's fault again. Dobnik in Game Two at Yankee Stadium. That's where I think it's sort of there gets to be a lack of appreciation because there's frustration. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, well, I think because one of the you know, when I when I tweeted out the uh, greatest hitter in Twins history thing last night with the OPS stats to back it up, by the way. So I have I have proved to you statistically that he is the greatest hitter in Twins history. Um, <laughs> the biggest comeback was like, well, Puckett did it in the World Series. Well, I mean, yeah, if if Nelson Cruz had better teammates around him, like maybe he would have played more playoff games and maybe he would have played in an American League championship series. You know what? I bet you if the Rays get to the American League Championship Series and the World Series, I'll bet you Nelson Cruz hits a couple clutch home runs. Like, that's the type of dude he is. So it's so much harder in baseball, though, because you can't just have one superstar, and he carries the team. I mean, look at the Angels. Look at the team that just – I mean, Mike Trout's still out with an injury, but they've got Shohei Otani and Mike Trout on that team up until Trout hurt his calf or whatever it was a month back. 
And they're going to finish like 10 games under 500 with maybe the two best players in all the baseball because you need a roster around you. And that's been the most disappointing thing. It's like, God, you get these guys like Cruz. And you had the one year, 2019, and then they, I think they sort of failed to realize like the urgency of that team's chance. And they didn't really do much at the trade deadline. So that's what that's what bothers me the most about it. When you see him go, it's like he's going to go and mash in October for the Rays. A team, by the way, with fewer resources, less money to spend on payroll, and still wins 90, 95 games and knocks on the door a World Series championship. So um, on the flip side, they did get two good, hard-throwing strikeout arms. Um, especially, is it Joe Ryan? Is that the 25-year-old kid? Correct. that He's actually, he's actually uh, in Tokyo right now for the Olympics. Big strikeout pitcher in the minor leagues. Um, my first instinct is, well, these guys are only, I mean, this hall is only as good as the Twins are at developing them, right? But the good news is the Rays are amazing at developing pitchers, and these dudes aren't 20-21. Like, these dudes have like almost fully incubated through the Rays process the last handful of years. And uh, and Joe Ryan in particular should be ready to pitch in the major leagues either this year. I mean, he's he's pretty much ready now. Yeah, we'll pro- um, probably or next see him year. in September. So yeah, so that's I mean the silver lining is you you got a pretty nice haul. These are two of the Rays' top twenty overall prospects, including Joe Ryan was their tenth best prospect, and he slots in at number six for the Twins. This is a good trade. So, this is exactly what they need to do and should keep doing as much as possible. Now, Cruz, among the pending free agents, Cruz was the biggest fish to fry. Um, but, yes, this is the right step. And at least you're at least you're taking chances on guys who are pretty good prospects who could help you. Because, back to your point, it appears that you have more problem developing pitching than we expected you to. So may, maybe if you can get a couple of guys at the end of that process in an organization where they do develop pitching pretty well, these guys can come up and help you in 2022. Okay, I've got, um, in fact, I wrote this for Score North last night. Pecking order of greatest Twins free agent signings of all time, okay? Because Cruz is on this list, no question about it. Now, pitcher-wise, pitcher-wise, I think there's one, for sure. Well, Jack Morris. Jack Morris, right. But yeah. hitters is much more interesting. Let me give you, and I consulted with Patrick about this. So, so Pat, who is the Score North Twins historian, probably officially, Royce told me what he thought. I combined it with what I thought um, because I was Joe Creedy. Because I Creedy. thought, well, yeah, Joe Creedy is a Tony great Batista. signing. Joe, Joe Creedy was such a good signing. What I originally thought was Cruz might be number one, and Patrick said no. So five to one, five. Josh Willingham, one great season. He was a really good signing. Thirty-five home runs, right? Silver Slugger. Yeah, he was injured for the the second and third season quite a bit. Yeah, he was one of the best hitters in baseball for that first season. And he got a three year and he got a three year twenty one million dollar deal, which I believe at the time was the high, the biggest free agent contract the Twins had given out back then, which is incredible. But that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Number four, Jim Tomey. Because I think you, what you said, Phil, is right. Like, it was fun, and he was a, a great guy to most. I mean, most people loved him. Um, but and some, some, some reporters antagonized him on the way out. But he, also only, but he also had the one year, played, I think, 71 games in 2011, which was a disaster, and then left. Number three, Chili Davis. Hmm. 
One yeah. one great season, but you won a World Series. He was one of the centerpieces of a World Series winning lineup. That's accurate. Number two, Nelson Cruz. Number one, and this is more well, Patrick guess, than me. Is number this one, position player. Hitter, yes, yes, where pitchers are out. This is and, only position player. It's a Patrick call. And it's a Patrick call, but it's not like some old school call because free, oh. free agency didn't exist oh, right, way back right, right. when. I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm trying to think of like the 87 team, Mm-mm. the 91 team. I think 90s. 90s? 90s? But they didn't. They were bad in the 90s. Right. Oh, the, oh Paul Molitor. Yes. He said Paul Molitor, in his opinion, is the best. Because he did that's have. Probably, yeah, pretty similar. I mean, like 40 years old. His first year here. Got his 3,000th hit. Here's an incredible thing. Paul's first year here, he led the league in hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hit like 340 one year here, didn't he? Yeah. Didn't he hit like 340 as yes. like a 38-year-old? He had three really solid years and like one outstanding year. And th- that always goes back to his first year here, 96, right? If, yeah. pu- if Puckett doesn't wake up with the dot in front of his eye, that lineup is incredible. Yeah, it's it's and that lineup scored a bunch of runs. I mean, they gave up like nine hundred runs as a staff right in the middle of the. But can you imagine era. that lineup with Puckett in it? Puckett, Molitor, Nobby, right? I mean, yep, just absurd. Can you humor me just for just for like two minutes on this greatest hitter in Twins history thing? Just sure. I just want there's one path I want to explore because the most common response when I threw that out there last night, and I've trademarked it now: the greatest hitter in Twins history, uh, all caps. We'll be selling T-shirts at some point. Nelson and I are going to form a business. Sure. Great. Yeah. Um, the biggest, like, most common response is to name a player from 40 years. Like, well, Rod Carew hit 388 back in the, the night, you know, 1970, whatever. Well, what about Harmon Killebrew, the killer? Right? Did you ever watch? You were too young to watch him in the 60s. And it's like I and I listen. I love baseball history. Um, I've got about nine of those like baseball history coffee table books that no one ever reads, but I do. Like I love baseball history. Baseball is the only sport where you can bring up a modern day contemporary elite athlete, whether it's Nelson Cruz or like in football. Boy, Pat Mahomes is the greatest quarterback I have ever seen. Well, you're too young to have watched Y.A. Tittle, right? Like, mm-hmm. boy, Justin Jefferson, boy, I haven't seen anyone at that young of an age do what he's doing on a football field. He might be the best young wide receiver ever, right? Well, Sonny, back in my day, Crazy Legs Hirsch was the best, you know, whatever. Like, no one does that in the other sports. Have you ever seen John Havlicek scoop layup, son? Maybe you should watch some old film before you start talking up LeBron and Giannis. It's like, but in baseball, we do it. Not only do we do it, we do it with like authority. It's no, 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 no. You never saw Babe Ruth. You never saw Mickey Mantle and Harmon Killebrew. It's like those guys weren't facing the Latin American pitchers that these guys are facing. Those guys weren't facing '97 pitchers. Were barely throwing sliders back in like the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Right. But baseball is the only sport where we we view it then the same way we view it now because the numbers that we measure players by are all the same, right? Mm-hmm. In the NFL, it's like oh QBR comes along and PFF comes along, and we've now completely changed the way that we evaluate players. And NBA, all these efficiency ratings and the three-point shot and all these things, it's like in baseball, it's batting average, it's on base percentage. The mainstream hasn't adopted weighted runs created or 
wins above replacement, right? So I don't know. My I guess my point is we do this in baseball all the time where it's like, oh, no, you never saw that guy play 100 years ago. You need to shut your mouth when you're talking about Mike Trout. I see what you're saying, but the thing that then is, and I've said this about sports for a long time, and it includes baseball, then you've got to, um, you've got to draw lines about what eras that we're talking about because Babe Ruth is the greatest player of his era, but that never era faced a, has never, changed. Never faced a black pitcher. Exactly. Never, never faced exactly. a Dominican pitcher. But so Cruz right. would qualify as Cruz might qualify as the greatest Twins hitter, for instance, since two thousand. That could probably be true. But I think you need to draw. I, I, I think I think what you're saying is relative to his era. Like yes, Carew to his era, Killebrew to his right. era. The only thing to cross me, comps the only are difficult. Thing, but the only thing, the only thing Killebrew has on. The three years we've seen with Nelson Cruz is, well, he just played for the Twins for like 12 or 15 years or whatever it was. She played longer. Mm -hmm. I get that. But if Nelson, like, if you could take this version of Nelson Cruz, well, he didn't play long enough. Well, what do you think would happen if Nelson, if you gave Nelson Cruz like five more years in his 30s with the Twins, he would still be amazing. (laughs) So I'm not going to punish Nelson for not having found the Twins earlier in life. So can we call him? He was amazing with the Mariners and he was amazing with the Rangers. can Can we call him the greatest Twins? Hitter, possibly, or probably, since 2000. Where do you rank Brett Favre among great Vikings quarterbacks? Number two behind Fran? I've done this before. No, I think I ranked him third. I think when I did this at the start of the pandemic, I think I ranked him third. But, I mean, you get pushed back. But Kramer did it longer. Kramer did it longer. Because of the one. Culpepper did it longer. But but that's what makes these debates. But that's what makes these debates fun, too. But baseball, you're right. Baseball is the one sport where we just draw no lines. And we're just like, well, let's get, okay, best baseball players of all time. Babe Ruth, Mantle, Trout. Cap Anson. Yeah, like, and we don't do that. Christy Mathewson. And we, are, like, well, don't sell the big train short, okay? Walter Johnson could bring it. Do you know how hard he threw? I heard he was once clocked at 89 miles an hour. Walter Johnson, like the, the strikeout train. artist of the 1920s or whatever, literally, literally struck out like five batters per night. Like he was, he was Nick Blackburn. Baseball doesn't. <laughs> baseball. Baseball does not. Beca- because big the train. history. Because the history of the game. Come on, yes, hey, throw the ball hey, on the field. Man, man, big, the big train down the, big, the back of the baseball coming right down the middle. Because the history of the game is leg kick. all we have with baseball. Like, it's a huge thing because it's one of the few things that we have. We do just try and, and draw comps between everybody. Yeah. I'm so. just saying, like. But Nelson Cruz, know, I, look, c- congratulations. You were great here. Go to Tampa and win. You won't because your starter will be throwing a great game in a pivotal playoff game, and Kevin Cash will get a call from upstairs and be told to yank that pitcher, and then he'll bring in the oh, bullpen, wow. and they'll oh, collapse. Wow. No, I'm sure, That's one of the worst moves of all well, time. Yeah, it was, but Nelson Cruz, that's, that's not his They have fault. enough offense. No, I know. They have enough I'm... offense to have a five-run lead now. That's Nelly's yeah. going to hit a granny. Yeah. Well, I hope, he do, I hope he does well. I hope he gets a, a ring. Um, I have serious reservations about him coming back. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears because Reckless Speculation Thursday doesn't sleep, gentlemen. <laughs> Reckless Speculation. Reckless Speculation Thursday on a Friday here on Mackie and Judd. Daily Minnesota sports entertainment, and we want titles. And you guys will have to tell me how much you buy into Jimmy Hayes on Twitter. Who is Jimmy Hayes? I'm going to let Declan tell you because I'm not... I was not familiar until I saw this. Yeah, I was blue checkmark. Yeah, I mean, actually, speaking of blue checkmarks, old friend of the show, Duncan Goldberg, uh, was the one who tipped me off to Jimmy Hayes' tweet. And uh, Jimmy Hayes 
is a podcast host uh, or a professional hockey player with the, with the Missing Curfew podcast. Um, okay. So it's it's Shane O'Brien, Scotty Upshaw, and Jimmy Hayes, and they have their podcast has six thousand followers on Twitter. He's got thirty nine thousand okay. followers on Twitter. Uh, some decent prominent NHL people follow him. Craig Custins follows him. Uh, so verified. He, well, he's, follow, he's, he's verified. verified. Blue check mark and a couple NHL guys Former follow him. Former wild great Ryan Donato follows him on Twitter. So and, he definitely must be plugged in. And I will say this: um, O'Brien is co-host of a show on NHL Network Radio on Sirius okay. quite a bit. So mm-hmm. he has some credibility. Like yeah. he's okay. So he's now, now that we've established full credibility here, yeah, uh, yeah, like Jimmy we, Hayes like tweets. Rumors starting to swirl. Mm-hmm. Three exclamation points. Billy G, Billy Garen, and the Wild are looking to land Jack Eichel, and it might be by tomorrow. Reckless speculation. This was sent yesterday at 3.08 p.m., and uh, tomorrow would be now today as we sit here on this Friday. So... I guess, I mean, there's been all sorts of Wild and Eichel linkage and talk. How much – could this happen this quickly? And Judd is now on the record saying, I would not do this. This no. is There's too many risks. I'm out. So if they did this, are you going to criticize them? Like, what's what's your stance on this? Comple- they- completely depends on what the return to Buffalo is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if they somehow finagle a deal that does not involve Fiala – Quite who? And they and Niederreiter. Back to Poles. Over to Kuba. Over to Sekaresh. Sekaresh into Dowd. If they f- find a way to make a trade that doesn't start with Fiala and involves draft picks and maybe I don't know whom, um, I probably wouldn't criticize them as much. I have serious, as I've told you, reservations about the neck procedure that might need to be done that could sideline him for quite some time in a season in which the Wild is going to have expectations that are going to be high, and they should be. I have concerns about Eichel off the ice in the room for a team that's tried to clear up that culture. There's things about him that I have questions about. But it, Billy Billy seems in tune with that yes. stuff, and he's pursuing dismissing I'm it. I'm just telling yeah. you, I have I, well, I have don't care about that, Billy and I don't have to be on the same page constantly just because we're friends. It doesn't mean that we have to be on the same page constantly. And the last thing about this is I just wonder as well, um, salary cap wise, because I, I know the, that the team has a lot of, of cap room for the 2021 22 campaign. I get a little bit concerned with Eichel's salary after that on a cap that's going to be incredibly tight, and you're going to have to get creative there as well. So those are the things that I have questions about. I do not think a deal goes down today. If it's going to go down, I don't think it does. Ah, uh, the NHL draft is today. Trades tend to happen on the NHL draft on this Friday. That is July twenty third. Wouldn't you wouldn't want the surprised. capital that comes tonight? You wouldn't want yeah. those picks for next year. You'd want yeah. that capital now. There's right? Wild have five first five picks. Excuse me, in the first ninety picks of the draft, I believe like they're the, one of two teams that has that luxury. And three picks overall in the first round of these next two drafts. So there's plenty of capital at play. I'm I'm with Judd. I don't want to mortgage completely the farm for Jack Eichel with the question marks around his uh, mostly his neck injury. I'm I'm putting aside the locker room issue. I I if, if Billy Guerin is doing the vetting process, I trust Billy. He could be wrong, but I trust Bill Guerin's judgment there. I would not trust Paul Fenton's judgment necessarily in that. Um, I wouldn't even tr- trust. Chuck Fletcher's judgment in that. But I know Bill Guerin knows what it takes to win, so I'm, I'm putting the character issue aside for the most part. 
Um, if you can get this for the right price, I, I'm in. I mean, and it would create an insane amount of buzz. Um, and it, he's the number one center that this team has lacked its entire franchise history. And if you get Eichel, you can sign Kaprizov. Here you go, Kirill. Here is now, I know you wanted the three-year deal, but here is their number one center. You no longer have to play with Ryan Hartman next season. You have Jack Eichel to play with next season. So I, I, I do think this is but bubbling. When, but when do you have him to play with? January, February? That's the problem. Yeah, the neck is... is, is the, neck, the neck gums up everything. I, to listen, me. If, if he wants to... I mean, if, there are worse things than him coming back in February. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to tell me he's going to miss the whole season... All right, that's a problem. But if he comes but back he's in February, come back for two months of a regular season stretch run, right? But then, but then there's going to be a ramp up once he gets back to even probably if he can do it, get, getting close to being the player that he can be, which should be a superstar in season. And you, it's go time. You've got the ability to win now. You it's need to make. Time. You go need time. to make moves. I, I don't want to be making down. moves after what they've done. I don't want to be making moves for when I am uh, cap poor. Here's another question I have for you because I think, like, let's talk about the the locker room stuff because I think that's a big deal. I mean, they they determined that Zach Parisi and Ryan Suter. I'm I'm going to stop short of saying cancers because I think that's a little aggressive. But like, those guys didn't exactly Legions? create the best. It was very clicky. Yes, and it was. Um, and there are and and you know, I mean, I I don't know how much reporting will be done on this, but like, there are a lot of instances that I think we can confirm where. Uh, Ryan Suter and Zach Parisi weren't always in line necessarily with what coach front office were doing and thinking, and that created some divide in the room. So I, I get that, like, we just sort of got done cleansing that, so to speak, a couple weeks ago. But Buffalo has been one of the train wreck franchises in the NHL. Like, they haven't made the playoffs in a decade in a sport where it's really, really hard to not make the playoffs once in 10 years. Yep. And even when they've made the play, the la- like the last time they were relevant going to the conference finals was 2007. And so this is, they've bounced around. They've had a new coach every year, two years. They just, it, they're basically the Cleveland Browns up until this last year of the NHL, the last 10 or 15 years. So how much of it is the stain of the organization sort of coming off on Eichel and now he's being branded as a bad room guy versus, no, he's just part of a train wreck organization and once you get him out of that organization and put him in an organization that knows what they're doing a lot more in Minnesota, then he's not going to have the stigma of being a bad leader or a bad room guy. So that is the question. Because if you remove him from Buffalo, does that change things? I've talked to people who know a lot more about the Sabres than I do, and all of them are fairly convinced that there could be some problems. And that's all I need to hear at that price tag and that expectation. Um, that there would be some, that there have been issues that go well beyond poor Jack Eichel is stuck with this bad team. But full disclosure, if he didn't have the neck and you could trade for him tonight and he could step in on opening night with no problems, I might take that chance. So that, to me, this is a, this is a, um, a confluence of things that scare me off. It's not just one thing. It starts with the neck. It's him off the ice as well. And again, it's your circumstance, you guys. I mean, look at where this team is. Look at where Bill Guerin has set this team up to be this coming season. And then look at the cap problems in the next two years. 
There is a window of opportunity here that's enormous. And I think that you need to make moves where you go into opening night ne- next year with full plans that you can make realistically, too. So not just pie in the sky. Of course we can make a run. That you can make a run to the Stanley Cup. I think you need to have that in place. And picking up a guy who might have a surgery still that, by the way, supposedly no one else in this league has ever had. Do I really want to take that gamble at the price tag? I'm sorry. I'm out. I'm still out. Okay. All right. Dex, final thoughts from you? Yeah, I I, I think Buffalo is a disastrous organization. I, I, I told Judd when we first started having these conversations, like in the middle of this past season, that they're dumb. And they could do something dumb. Now, they're asking for the moon for Jack Eichel. And it's a new GM, too, so he's going to be smarter than the previous one who was an idiot. But this ownership and the entire group is just fools. Um, Casey Middlestead was a big whiff by them, a former gopher. He looks like he's going to be a bust. Um, They traded away your guy Ryan O'Reilly for a bag of pucks, who then went on to be maybe the heart and soul now of the St. Louis Blues. Um, They acquired Taylor Hall and alienated him so much that he goes to Boston and becomes Taylor Hall again. They're dumb. And I could see them doing something dumb again, like giving up Jack Eichel for peanuts. Not peanuts, but something not, not as ups, ups substantial. I don't see it. Their, their GM now might not be perfect, but he is not going he, to do that. He signed Jeff Skinner. They signed Jeff Skinner to that, that horrible was Botterill, contract. Though. That, that's the previous guy that got blown out. Well, until they prove to me that new ex-GM is actually competent, I'm going to assume that this, this organization has no idea what they're doing. So I, I, I do think they're going to possibly screw this up with the benefit of the wild side. And it could happen today. And it could happen I mean, it's great today. reckless speculation. Reckless speculation. It's fantastic reckless speculation. It is. Uh, and that reckless speculation powered in part by our friends at Federated. Nothing reckless about Federated. They've been helping business owners in the state of Minnesota for over 100 years, based in Owatonna. They're one of us. They support local sports teams. They support Gophers Athletics. And uh, also Big Brothers Big Sisters, a, a great charitable organization. And they'll help your business maximize its potential, minimize risk, and uh, they'll just help you sleep better at night as a business owner. Find out more at federatedinsurance.com. And remember, at Federated, it's our business to protect yours. All right, boys, it's time for another Mackie and Judd Sports Movie Rewind. Let's do it, Dex. All right, here we go. Not Cleveland. No, say it's not Cleveland. Not Cleveland. <clears throat> we got a call from a manager in <clears throat> Japan. Japan. Yeah, it's the uh, Ch- Forget it. Junichi. No. I'm a major leaguer. There's no way I'm going to play in Japan. Uh, four things that I accept about myself. Problems with authority. The attention span of a gnat. A bad right knee. And trouble understanding women. Acceptance is only the first step. (sighs) Okay. Okay. You had a vision of a beer. Hi. Did I read that sign right? Yes. Swing away. Maybe I'll break your record. I said... Sing away. Yes, Chief. This is the Mackie and Judd Movie Review Franchise. Action Movie Rewind, Rom-Com Rewind, and Sports Movie Rewind, which is the run we're on right now. And we go back to 1992. I would say one of the, 
and maybe for a good reason, forgotten sports movies of the 1990s, Mr. Baseball. Here's the summary. A professional American baseball player whose career is on the wane, Jack Elliott, played by Tom Selleck and his mustache, gets traded to the Dragons, a Japanese team. Openly unhappy about the change, Jack Elliott isn't eager to adapt to a new culture and proceeds to get on the bad side of his teammates, including another American, Max Hammer Dubois, played by Dennis Haysbert, who also played, uh, what's his name, in uh, Major League, Major League Two. Um, uh, Pedro Serrano. Pedro Serrano. Eventually, Jack Elliott decides to make a real effort, attempting to improve his game and his attitude. But will it be enough to help lead his team to victory? This movie received a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. There is no critics' consensus. A $40 million budget turned into just $20 million at the box office. This movie (laughs) lost $20 million. (laughs) It starred Tom Selleck, Dennis Haysbert, Frank Thomas, by the way. Yeah, the I thought that was star him. First I wanted baseman. more Big Hurt. I thought that was him. I didn't get enough yeah. Big Hurt. We had a little Bob Costas and Tim McCarver as well calling yep. calling games there at the beginning. So, yep. all right, we'll start with, first of all, have you guys, you, Judd, you've seen this movie before. I don't think right? I have. No. I think I've seen bits and pieces, but shockingly, yeah. I always turn yeah. past it. Now I know why. It, it's always like... <laughs> You know, an MLB Network does like their bleacher yes. feature, I think is what it's called. Like, it, yeah. I always see this and I, I've never turned it on. And I am glad I never did until I was forced to watch it for this podcast. I'm with you. It's a good preview for, I think, the way this is about to go. So uh, we'll start with Judd. What was your main takeaway from Mr. Baseball? I have two thoughts. Thought one in the franchise that we have, have d- done here, which involves action films, sports films, and rom coms. There's always been one that causes us to pivot to a new genre because it's so <laughs> horse bleep. This one it. did it. Okay, so like yeah. we're not doing a sports film next week because this right. is. I've got a couple. I've pivot. got a couple action movies. Okay, good, good. I need to. Is. I need to cleanse the movie palette. Oh, God, dude. Um, this film, like, I mean, we can pile on it, but this film was so predictable and so sappy. And it felt like, I mean, I have no idea what the background of, like, who wrote this and why. And, and the idea is not bad. I, I mean, guys did this and have done this, so it's certainly not a bad idea. But it felt like a vehicle that, that Selleck, probably coming off the Magnum P.I. franchise, because he sort of looked the same at the time, wrote for himself, basically, to feature Tom Selleck. Yes. Um, but, I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing about this film that's really good. I've got one thing that I'll bring up later that I thought they did a decent job with. But there's nothing about the storyline that's good. It's so predictable. And it doesn't do anything. Like, there's so many also um, just sort of non-believable things. For instance, the manager, who supposedly, I guess, not, not the front office guys, who they keep showing, but the manager's the one that traded for or got the rights to sell it to bring him over from the Yankees. So he's like their huge investment. And he speaks perfect perfect English, but he spends the entire film until Selleck starts dating his daughter, not speaking English, and trying yeah. to make Selleck's life impossible. When he's yes. the guy whose like, job was on the line if Selleck didn't succeed. And I'll stop there. This stunk. Yeah. Um, my main takeaway is this is definitely... They, they thought the fact that this got greenlit for a $40 million budget meant they thought this was going to be 
I think they figured this was going to be a wild success mm-hmm. in the United States and in Japan. That because baseball was so big, right? We're coming off the nineteen ninety one World Series, you know, Twins and Braves record ratings, and like baseball is peaking in the early nineties. It's America's sport. It's it's the most popular sport in the country. And you got the it's the Yankees, and you got these heritage Japanese franchises, and Tom Selleck, and so they had all the ingredients. And then they they, they saw the success of Major League from 1989, um, and they just whiffed, <laughs> no pun intended, on almost everything. It, it really winds up being, and I'll save this for another category, but it really winds up being just like a watered down diet version of major league in some ways, including the end baseball scene, which we'll get to. But, I, man, it's it's probably been 15 years. I have seen this movie before. It's probably been about 15 years. I was hoping that it would hold up better. Um, there are some things that I did like about this movie, but ultimately it just like, I don't know, man. It was just, it was just, it was basically just Tom Selleck being Tom Selleck and yes. nothing is else this, really happening around. Is this supposed to be a cross between major league and bull Durham? And is Selleck supposed to be kind of, Costner-like? Yeah. Like, is yeah. that what they were going for? Because in of, Bull Durham, yeah. Costner's phenomenal. I, I think he's fantastic. But, like, it felt like a feature. It felt like a project done for Selleck, who loves baseball, loves baseball. And they thought that it was going to be somehow romanticized. I, I don't know. But the writing is just god-awful. Uh, Dex, what was your main takeaway? Yeah, this is a really bad movie. Um, I... <laughs> I don't even know if I call this a sports movie because, like, I, I don't. I half the time it's like him just being a, aloof and being a misogynist and being tone deaf this entire film. It's Tom Selleck being Tom Selleck. I don't like there. There isn't as much baseball as I wanted to be involved in this movie. It's a bad movie. Like I, 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 I had to pause at moments and walk away and do other things. <laughs> really, it's the only time in this franchise wow. I had to pause like three different times. Now, granted, the Nelson Cruz news broke in the in towards like the last half hour, which was a rightfully so to pause. But I had to pause and walk away from this movie at some point to to like, I don't know if I can continue watching this movie at this pace. I have to like come back and do it in chunks. That's how bad this was. I've never had to do that okay. with our movie. Hear reviews. me out, Nelson Cruz, but with a Tom Selleck mustache. Huh? No. Uh, no, because no. Cruz Cruz would be a better actor than Selleck was in this film. <laughs> I don't know. I thought, okay, so let's get to the favorite parts because I'll start, all right? My favorite part was Tom Selleck as an aging ball player in the early 90s, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I thought Tom Selleck fit the role of an aging ball player. He looks like a ball player. He's pretty pretty big guy, right? He's, you know, yeah. his swing wasn't bad. Like, that was him no, swinging in the batting cage. He's a big ball guy, man. You know, Loves wasn't ball. much of a launch angle guy. He had more of kind of a flat plane swing. Yeah. And yeah. it was like, okay. it had like a... It was very obvious to me that he had studied Kirk Gibson's swings from, like, the late 80s. He had that sort of, you know, like the low yep. trajectory swing, kind of the flat plane swing, and then the home runs were flying out, uh, you know, 10 feet off the ground. But I, I think I think uh, Jack Elliott, great baseball name from, like, the 80s, 90s. I could see Jack Elliott with a mustache as a middle of the order Yankees hitter in like the late eighties, early nineties. Sure. Well, I he, could definitely see that. He looked apart, but I mean there was no saving the whole thing. I and, and plus his character, the pendulum swings 
for good old Jack. Like at times, to Dex's point, he'd be a misogynist, and then at times he'd be like, but I don't understand women, oh, so God. help me understand. Spare it, me. It's like, who? what's your personality, dude? Yeah. Like at sometimes he he was sappy and a wimp, and at sometimes he was offensive, and it's like, get on some drugs, man. Get your what, life together. What, what did you make of the Jack Elliott loving that nightlife at the beginning of the movie where he... Like he wakes up. Yeah, sorority I think it was house? in like some sorority yes. house. And he's completely yeah, and he's, naked and has to yeah. put the jeans like, and he's again. Like, he's like 40. He's like yeah. a 40-year-old guy just like waking up at a sorority house. I'm telling you, I think they were going for that Costner, Bull Durham uh, uh, thing, and it just felt weird. And That was downright creepy. Like the sorority he house was just creepy. Point, he also at one point when he was talking to the manager's daughter, I think he referred to offering up mustache rides. Yes. Yeah. He did. Like that oh, was actually yeah. a thing that he said. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, he did. This was wildly uncomfortable. It felt, it felt mustache like Magnum P.I. playing a baseball player. Yeah, like that's what they much. thought they were going to try and ride to victory. And did, it didn't work. and did Bull Durham come out before this? 89 uh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Old Durham and Major League, I think, came out in the same year. Yes. And the late 80s, early 90s were, were a great era for real baseball and for uh, movie cinematic baseball. Yeah, this film definitely tried to capitalize off that and failed. Uh, my favorite part was actually, and keep in mind, like this is a short list of things to choose from, so I'm, I'm not trying to choose one. It's the only thing. I thought the baseball scenes themselves were shot okay. Yeah, like, like they the were. Base, they were. Like, like yes. the baseball it's, scenes. It's going to rate fairly high on the realistic baseball. Part of what they did yeah. that I liked that was smart was it felt like they kept the camera angles really tight a lot of times. And so there wasn't an obvious, like they would shoot something and then and it would be a tight shot and then it'd be done. So like there wasn't a lot of follow up to look at, oh, look at how that guy did this or that. Yes. So I thought, I thought the... If it's the right term, the choreography of the baseball scenes were was actually pretty spot on and good. Which I'm guessing Selleck played a role there because again, the man is a enormous Tigers fan and an enormous baseball fan. So somebody knew what they were doing from a baseball perspective. Unfortunately, they didn't know what they were doing from a movie perspective. So in the production notes, I'll just I'll, there's only really one meaningful one. So Tom Selleck had full control over, like, the end script and everything. He was such a big star coming off of Magnum P.I. and other things. And I'm guessing he made millions of dollars for this movie, right? And so he got final say over a lot of things. And there was just – there was a lot of – there was, like, like Panasonic took over from another studio, and they had to sort of rewrite to make the, some of the Japanese scenes less insensitive because, like, Americans – up and I mean, Americans still do this, right? There's a, like make fun of Asian people culture, and that was hugely prominent in the early '90s. And so they had to like wash some of that stuff out of the movie. And I don't know. Interesting. Um, another to your point about the actual baseball scenes. One mistake that sports movies make a lot is showing too much of the crowd. Yeah. Like in a big moment, the crowd—they're just a bunch of bystanders watching a movie being filmed, right? Right. And you're supposed to be capturing like these huge moments of a game, and like there's and these people aren't actors; they're just sitting there watching the filming of a scene. It's like okay, everybody cheer, and sometimes showing too much of the crowd just makes it feel unrealistic and weird. It's like, well, no, first of all, no one's wearing team colors; they're all just wearing their normal clothes, <laughs> and uh, and like no one's reacting in the way that you would actually react if this was happening. So I'm glad that they kept it mostly to the. The field action. Dex, what was your favorite part? Uh, my favorite part was the his like pub interpreter, like publicist guy. Like I don't know if he was like an actual reporter for for an outlet, but.
But that scene where he like reads the newspaper and he figures out like he fabricated a story, like uh, about his quotes about the manager when he's like at the bar, you know, with all the baseball guys and then they're and they're being dudes basically. Which, which is another thing. Which is another about. scene. Actually, I have the clip as well. Um, but uh, how he basically lies and makes him look good because he realized that Tom Selleck is a fool. And this is a completely different culture than America. Like, I think also people do forget about that. Like, not everything in America is the exact same in other places. So he was trying to protect him. And I even thought, oh, that's really admirable because Tom Selleck's being an absolute moron. And his agent or whoever this publicist guy is is just looking out for him. And then Selleck basically being the buffoon. He is, no, you, you put down what I write, blah, blah, blah. But I actually, my favorite part was him. So he was trying to defend him. That was my favorite part of this movie. Oh. Oof. Which is bad. Score well for the it, movie. It does not. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so not but you glossed over another great part here, which is the American baseball players who all just like hang out at the same American sports bar. Like, forget about the fact that there's all these Japanese teams just strewn probably hundreds of miles apart, right? <laughs> and they're all just like they're all just hanging out. Hey, it's Bob. I used to play for the Orioles. Do you have a clip of this? Dex? Yes, I do. Welcome to Japan, Mister Baseball. Why, Mister Baseball? Mr. Baseball. Right here, baby. Hey. Right. Read it to him, right? Yeah. Hey. When asked his impression of his new manager, Elliot replied, I have much to learn from Uchiyama-san. He'll gladly strive to shed all my old, disgusting ways of laziness and become my best under his guidance. <laughs> very harmonious of you, Mitsu. Yoji. Yoji be your assigned interpreter? Am I right? That's right. Well... Let us tell you a few things about your new neighbors over here, Jack. Yeah. First, you got your Gaijin strike zone. Roughly the size of a Buick. And I hope you didn't bring your... We're just hanging out at the American bar. Yeah, it's like they're American a champ. Ball it's like they're a champ. Yeah, drinking beer. Hey, bring over some of those curly fries. Yeah, I want some now. curly fries. waffle fry season. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. All right, least favorite part of this movie, oh, Judd. Oh, God, there's so many there's, there's so many choices. And it's funny here because in this film, for sure, least favorite part and least believable sort of cross paths a lot because it's so poorly written and it's yeah. so hard to believe. Um, but I think my least favorite part is the relationship between Jack and Hiroko, oh, duh. which is lazily written. Uh, it's way too up and down. Like, oh, I, you know, we're falling in love. I hate you. Now we're back together. We're falling in love. Now I'm soaping your hairy chest. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, when she just happens to, and, <laughs> and, and he doesn't know that she's the daughter of the manager until they go to her parents' house. And then, again, he speaks perfect English. And noodle. That's a terrible move by her, man. You got to give him a heads up. But You got to give him a heads up. But. Somebody would tell you the first time when when he talks to her the first time and he asks and Selk's character, Jack Elliott, asks his interpreter, you know, who is she? And he's just like, basically, there's a lot. I forget his line. Anyway, he would tell him at that point, that's the daughter of the manager. So that's my least favorite. part. But the relationship was awful. Like it was so boring and poorly written and and predictable. There was nothing about that that was redeeming. Uh, what would you guys do if a beautiful woman, if you were single and you're a ball player and a beautiful woman offers you a bath and a Coors? Well, that sounds excellent. Dex, that, that, sounds, Saturday that, night. That, that sounds like it'd be a great evening for How me. How about that you sit in this hot bath 
Very small. I'm gonna, hot I'm gonna come up behind you. I'm gonna give you a massage. I'm gonna massage your hairy chest from behind uh, while you sip a Coors. Oh, banquet. gross! Okay, well you put it like that. No, I'm uh, a Coors banquet now beer. I'm oh, banquets! I, I banquet love me a banquet. Beer. I love me a. Banquet. You know what? I didn't need to I love me a banquet. And we, we've no. co- we've come across this in action films and sports films as well. And it seemed to be a '90s. I, I think it was an '80s and '90s staple that I'm guessing you don't see as much now because it's not as big a deal. Actors like Selleck who do films and they show their bare bottom. Oh yeah, yeah, you saw. Yeah, right. I thought I, I, was mean, see Tom, the, I think, think Stallone loved himself some Tom Selleck. Yeah, Stallone, Tom Selleck chest hair was iconic. Kurt back Russell, in that right? Day. Stallone, Kurt oh, yeah. Russell, Tom Selleck. Well, the chest hair is what it is. I don't care about that. But it's like let's show him taking a shower and you can see his bottom and you might get a view. Oh no, you don't get oh. the other view. Last second. I mean, if, if they hadn't shown Tom Selleck's ass. This movie goes from $20 million at the box office down to what? $12? $4. There's Direct to DVD. I mean, there's, there's, there's $10 million in just women wanting to see Tom Selleck's bare ass in this movie, right? 2002. If this film was made 10 years after it was made, I think it stands a fighting chance. Direct to DVD. <laughs> Probably does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Least favorite... What are we on, Dex? Or yeah, is it, that, is that, that bathtub scene was one of the most uncomfortable I've ever been in our movie reviews. That was that was <laughs> so bad, dude. I, I was so uncomfortable by that entire... How he takes the towel and, like, covers up his manhood, too. The washcloth. The, that, wash that yes. the yeah. like, washcloth. Yes. Like, oh, that's good. Which, work. by the way, he... Okay, and what's ridiculous is the entire movie, he is portrayed as a guy that would happily just be sitting in that tub... Naked, waiting for a woman to walk in, and Easily. then all of a sudden he gets sheepish. That's in what that I'm moment saying. And grabs a washcloth. Who was like, he? What? Yeah, like it's at some points he he was a complete a hole, and at some points he was this, you know. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't I don't understand women. Please help me. Who are you, dude? Yeah, yeah. and and just uh, the creepy undertones of the of the early '90s. Like the '90s are great. I love the '90s. I love the '90s music scene is great. It's probably my favorite John era of music. But like. The '90s creepy undertones of Tom Selleck and those guys at the baseball bar, just like it's cringe. Like, it, like there's so many shows, especially, and I know some people say, like, "Well, we're now we're woke enough, and you're canceling culture and all this stuff." But some things have just, as time has gone on, just like been awful. Like the show Entourage is one of my favorite shows. That wouldn't last two episodes in 2021 culture if they ran it back. Um, same, same with like these movies like this, when we see with these '80s and '90s movies that we do, it it can be really uncomfortable. And th- there was a lot of uncomfortable scenes in this movie. My my least favorite part of this movie was the end baseball sequence that they just blatantly ripped off from Major League, right? You got the old broken down veteran player and and the and the thought is that he's going to hit a home run, right? And then, and the and the way that they got into it was different, but like game-winning run on second base, two outs, ninth inning or whatever, right? And the old Codger veteran player is going to hit a game-winning home run, and Jake Taylor in Major League points to center field like Babe Ruth and calls You're a right. shot, then lays You're down right. a bunt. This is great. Tom Tom <laughs> Selleck did, didn't point. He went and talked to the manager. You know, they did the callback on the because he gave him the bunt sign earlier in the movie, um, and so it's expect he's going to hit he's going to hit a home run for the seventh consecutive game and break the manager's all-time record, and he drops down a bunt. Um, and I pulled up some. Let me grab this real quick in my notes because in in the Wikipedia description of this movie, like in the plot description, and I don't know who's, I don't know who like wrote this or or what, but it said with the bases loaded, two outs, 
and his team and his team down six to five. The team brass expects Uchiyama to signal for a bunt to try to tie the game, mm-hmm. even though it would de- uh, deny Elliott the chance to break the home run record. And then, of course, there's the conversation between Jack Elliott and Uchiyama. Like, are you sure you don't want me to bunt in this situation? Like, it's a it's a big conversation about like I should be bunting here, right? No, 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 swing away. But then he bunts anyways. There's two outs and the bases are loaded, and you're down by a run. Yeah, bunting is the worst possible thing. <laughs> you can do. There's a force at home plate, like like bunting in that spot is so dangerous. And again, right. now unless you're doing it in the way that he did it, which is the infield's playing back and it's a bunt for a hit, but like. There would be no discussion among anyone about bunting unless it was a surprise sneak attack sort of thing, which it wound up being, right? So, like, the whole, it was weird, like, this expectation that he's going to bunt, and then Jack Elliott, like, calling time and being confused, like, are you sure I'm not bunting? Why would you be bunting? It doesn't make any sense. There's two outs and the bases are loaded. Now, I took that to mean, so I thought he got, so early in the film, earlier, when, when, when he is still butting heads with um, the chief, yeah, um, I, he got the bunt sign and then went called timeout and went and talked to the manager, and he then ignored he ignored the the direction right like I think he swung away or something. So I think yes. it I think in well, this he, case he tried to bunt the first and he whiffed on the first. That's bunt right. He, that's yeah. right. So I think in this case, if I'm not mistaken, he got the bunt sign again, but the chief was trying to show the brass that he was going to call for a bunt, but then wanted Jack to disobey him to swing away. And he, I mean, it was so confusing. So like, I think what he was doing was he was giving the bunt sign to the third base coach who relayed it. And that's when Jack Elliott called timeout to go. You're talking the second time? The second time. Yeah. No, the second time he gave him a swing away sign. Oh, I thought he gave him the bunt sign, and then and then he said, "Ignore my direction," and he wanted the that ownership group. I don't even know who they were. Some executive board to see it, but it, that's how confusing. That's how poorly written <laughs> this film was. My point. I, I think it just. Stunk. I think he gave him the he gave him the swing away sign, and Jack was thinking, okay. "I thought this is a situation." Oh, okay, where you I thought he gave him bunt. the bunt signs, so the executives would be like, "Oh." Uh, Chief did the right thing, and then they would come back, and and he would ignore it. But anyway, oh, that's maybe, how I guess. that's how I, I poorly. Watch, maybe I'll watch it back and see. Yeah, no, I never will again. <laughs> but that's how poorly written this film was. Like that's th- this is the problem with the film is because you're you're right, and I didn't think of this at the time. They ripped the end of Major League completely off, but then they managed to screw it up and make us more confused. No, uh, okay, least believable. I got a bunch um that i've been going through and i actually think i act this film was so bad that i don't know that i have a least favorite part because it was so bad Mm -hmm. and so unbelievable that i actually have a laundry list of Mm -hmm. unbelievable things where it's just like this is just nonsense but i'm going to give you my my one that i decided has to be the least believable and again it comes back to the fact that if selick had final say on the script how the hell did he not rewrite this all right jack elliott he might have just he might have just taken his money and said i don't care anymore that's a very good point jack elliott gets traded traded by the yankees to japan and he is miserable he hates the culture he wants back in the big leagues he is a big league ball player damn it i belong in the big leagues all right 
And then he befriends the other American on his team, Max Dubois. All right. And at the end, at the end of the film, they try and fool you in the bar after the big game by there's the discussion about a player having just signed with the Braves. He's going to Atlanta. He's going he's gonna to get on a plane. And the insinu- or not the insinuation, the discussion had been that's Jack, right? Jack is going to get the contract. But then when they pan out of the camera at the bar, it's Max who gets the contract. Yeah. And Jack is like, oh, I'm and Max says, oh, I'm sure you'll get back to it. And Jack's like, oh, yeah, I mean, eventually I'll get my shot again. It's like the whole so, film he was trying to get back to the States. And now Max has basically come in and usurped him. And he's fine with that. Also, what doesn't make sense is Jack's agent called and said, hey, we're coming over. And yeah. we've got a spot for you. I think it's, it was with the Dodgers or something, right? Dodgers. I'm sorry, and, not the Braves. And we're just going to – but maybe Max signed with the Braves? I don't remember. Uh, but they come over, and it's like, this is a this is a done deal. We're just going to come over and watch you play, like, a game and then pick you up and bring you back to the States. So did they just – did they watch the game and think, actually, oh, my God, actually, Max <laughs> is the did. one that's yes. better. Yes. And so we're just going to – yeah, we're going to sign him instead after one game – I don't know. The whole thing was – I would feel like that was a bait and switch if I was Jack. I'd probably but, fire my agent in that situation. Well, and his, and that guy is a total, like, scumbag, too. And they never, like, make a point of the being – The weird ponytail. The I love the early off. 90s slick back ponytail guy. Yeah, Paul Always Heyman. a shady character. Paul Heyman. Movies. Looking like yeah. Paul Heyman. Anyway, <laughs> that whole thing was just so stupid. And then it's like, oh, look, it's Max who gets the – Jack's like, I'm happy for you. I'm I'm happy to stay here. I call uh, Dex, le- least believable for you. Yeah, what the hell was that ball field that they used? That baseball field made like the Sandlot look like Target Field, like that. Fe- so those, that- I think that was a common thing, especially in the eighties and nineties, dirt infields yep. in Japanese leagues. They actually had yeah. those. It was like mud. Like it, yeah. it was. Yeah, but they did have those, and in the ballparks that they used, I think were all real because I think they used the Tokyo Dome for one one short scene as well okay which was a place so it looked weird but I think that was again I think they did right by just like a lot of the baseball stuff yeah yeah I did not like the field then also yeah. I didn't enjoy how basically all the other teams in the in this Japan league were just basically knockoff ripoffs of other like the Giants the Dodgers that's how their league is that is have also, also real. yes have you ever watched the Tokyo no, Giants I haven't. <laughs> clearly I haven't yeah no that that's yeah, how, that's what they those do those are real teams yeah. yes I thought but like I, I've seen some of like the no. highlights and stuff and none of them are MLB teams like colors and stuff the Tokyo Giants well, not, were real not, not every and the Dragons team is, but yeah yeah. Yeah, no, that yeah. no, that, no. You you just ripped them for two things that were actually accurate. Oh wow, look at that! I'm googling right now. You huh. you literally just ripped them for the two most believable things. Yeah, I didn't in know the that. Entire movie. I, I like those that. jerseys too, you guys. I I thought they were cool. I didn't even know that was a thing. Huh. <laughs> I'm I'm actually gonna I for, I forgot um, oh, wow, yeah. one of my favorite things in this movie. So I'm actually you guys Judd nailed the least believable stuff there. Awesome. Um, this movie foreshadowed. Siyoshi Nishioka's struggles with the Minnesota Twins with one line. When Jack reams out his teammate for not sliding hard into second base to break up the double play, and Max comes in and stops him, he's like, Jack, no, 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 no. It's considered disrespectful and dishonorable to slide hard into second You're base. Right. We, don't, we don't break up double plays. Great call. And what happened? Nishioka in New York, it's like the first week of the season in 2010, 
2011. 2011. That's right. And Nick Swisher, I think it was, comes bearing down into second base to break up a double play. And Nishioka was like completely caught off guard, had his leg planted in the ground, broke his leg. And after the game, it was like, what? Like, why didn't he jump? Like, what? You couldn't see Nick Swisher barreling down the, the line to second base? Like, how does that happen? And um, a couple of the Japanese media members, you know, told the American, the Twins beat writers, yeah, that's just not a thing in Japan. Like, it's, you're right. They don't, they don't do that at second base in Japan. And so uh, he was probably just, like, not used to it. I mean, I'm sure they practiced some of it in spring training, but, like, this is now it's go time. It's April, baby. And, uh, so it's disrespectful to take somebody out at second on a slide. It was the line I wrote down. It's like, wow, that Nishioka, man. You're right. And totally what the rules are, you don't spit on the field. You don't take out guys mm-hmm. at second. You take your shoes off yeah. in the clubhouse. So, yeah. so Phil, off that, because I, I thought of another Nishioka thing. What? So, like, the whole thing, because I think this was right. The whole thing was, like, we're a team, right? And, like, like there's no, like, superstars. And, and Jack didn't fit in because he considered himself to be above the team, at least at the start of his time with the club. So in retrospect, what was the Nishioka thing with him choosing to work out alone in Florida, which he really did. But I mean, but wouldn't that fly counter to how Japanese baseball approaches things? Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about Japanese baseball, but you know, just to, for the audience, this is like 10 years ago now, time flies. So Nishioka, when he signed, he was the batting champion. He batted like 345 or 350. Mm -hmm. All of it was BABIP inflated, by the way. He was like a career 280 hitter in Japan. Had one big pop-up season because he just kind of got lucky. Um, And the Twins, I don't know, the Twins just didn't scout him well enough. But when he signed, like no one knew that he was a bust. Like you're thinking, oh, this is the Japanese batting champion. He's coming over. And so nobody really thought twice about the way he approached spring training, which was for the first week and a half leading up to the full team workout. So pitchers and catchers had reported, and so there's like that four-day window where everyone's there and pitchers and catchers are working out, and the position players are all just like working out together with these unofficial workouts on the main field. And Nishioka was always on side fields with his trainer, his nutritionist, uh, some other. It was like It was like four different people that were with him, and he wasn't wearing twins gear. He was wearing like whatever his sponsored gear was from Japan, oh like Mizuno God. or something. I remember, yes. And yes. so like, Garden Hire was, was legitimately ruffled and like, well, we've we've offered him like twin stuff to at least if he's going to work out, like at least put some twin stuff on and, oh, just doing his own thing. But at the time it was like, oh, he's a superstar. So let's just, this is what he's going to, this is how he's going to go about it. And then obviously <laughs> well, that became laughable like four months later. So, yeah. And Crush um, Smokes too. He did. He ripped all kinds of heaters. And put, and put bidets, rightfully so, in the target field uh, clubhouse. Well, that's, that's Dex on board with that. Yeah, I love that. MVP votes for Nishioka yeah. from Dex. Yep. So, all right, let's get to the believability of sports action in this movie rating. So, 1 through 10. And we're just rating the believability of the actual sports action that took place. So, Little Big League is the most believable sports action movie that we've seen so far. 8.7 out of yes. 10. Any Given Sunday, 7.5. Major League, 6.2. Mighty Ducks, 2.7. Draft Day, also a 2.7. Mr. Baseball, 1 through 10. I'm going to give it a 7. It was... 
Oh, but, the believability. Yeah, yes. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Oh, not the film. Oh, God, <laughs> sorry, no. What? No, no. The believability of the sports action, for the most part, was pretty damn good. Um, A seven. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I will say that's like one of the saving grace of the film. I mean, the, yes. there's those goofy baseball workouts. But that's just Selleck being, you know, aloof. That's just him making, yeah. and again, mocking uh, another another country's culture and, and ways of life. So... Actually, I think, yeah, the believability of the baseball, despite I did not know that, A, fields were muddy, and, two, the league actually uh, basically emulated other MLB teams. Uh, but, yes, I do think the action was pretty legit. I'll give it a 7 as well. Um, boys, I'm, I'm actually giving it a 9 for sports action because they, they, they knew not to do too much, right? They knew mm-hmm. not to show enough. Don't show on athletic guys. They had Frank Thomas taking BP as realistic as you can get. Mm-hmm. Thomas Selleck's swing was very realistic, very Kirk Gibson-like. Even the sound effects, like the crack of the bat and uh, the ball hitting the catcher's mitt and stuff, like the Japanese crowds. Yeah, it was good. All of it was all of it was pretty damn realistic. Yep. Like the batting practice scenes and stuff, they're doing calisthenics in the outfield, and then they're doing batting practice. It's like it's, it was all very legitimate. So I'm giving it a 9, which makes it a 7.7 for believability, the second most believable sports movie okay. that we have reviewed so far. All right, now we get to the entertainment value, 1 through 10. Ugh. Major League is a 9. Little Big League a 7.3. Any Given Sunday a 7.2. Mighty Ducks a 7. And Draft Day a 6. Judd. So the rating for this film, where do I start? Um, I'm debating just a little bit here. I'm debating. <laughs> I am going to give it, you know what I'll give it? I'll take my debate and split it right down the middle. 1.5. Okay. I was between a one and a two. <laughs> 1.5. film was so, so just to be clear here, any given Sunday had a ton of flaws. But for the purposes of this segment, it was damn near perfect. Like it sure. was a yeah, perfect. It also had twenty or twenty-five recognizable actors. Absolutely, but I'm just right. saying the storyline also was goofy, but it was perfect to break down. This film sold us short. Like this should be a really fun film to break down, and they couldn't even get there. They get a one point yeah. five. Dex, yeah, it's a one. Uh, the what the point five for Judd I think is extra a little generous there. This is one of the worst films I've had to endure in a long, long time, and uh, I will. I, it's a one. It's not. Tom Selleck is is aloof. I don't really find much of the sports action enjoyable in this movie. It half it is him being. It's because you didn't know it was real, and also I didn't know Japanese baseball <laughs> teams are just copying other major league baseball teams with their jerseys and uniforms. Um, yeah, it's a one. It's a one out of ten. Uh, I love Tom Selleck. Can I do Tom too? Selleck? Tom Selleck, I think, in the, the, the ten episode run that he was on Friends too, yeah. was oh, just great. some of his best work. Roger. It's great. Richard, Richard. Yep. Richard. 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 So I'm giving it a two because of Tom Selleck. I just <laughs> love Tom Selleck. And the baseball action was fine. So I'm giving it a two, which means it's a one point five average rating for us, making it by far the worst sports movie we have reviewed to this point. And uh, like Judd said, Lethal Weapon two or no, Beverly Hills Cop two. Sent us away from action movies for a while. Can't remember which rom-com sent us away. But, like, you get to that point where, all right, got to pivot back to a different genre. <laughs> Can't take another so we're, disappointment. We're, we're going back to action movie rewind. You all guys right. good with that sure. next week? Because we, there's, a, there's a bunch on the board here. Heck oh, yeah. uh, real quick, one, one quick thing that we didn't get to. 
Yep. The 1991 New York Yankees, like they filmed some shots oh, yeah. of Yankee Stadium. That was the 1991 New York Yankees season. Mm-hmm. Dex wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell us much about that team. He wasn't around yet. But, Judd, <laughs> what can you tell us about the 1991 New York Yankees? Well, that was an era where the Yankees still weren't good. So, like, that was, and that was a long run. That started they were at seventy one and ninety one. Yeah, they were they were not good. Um, okay, so the scene at the beginning where it's an aerial shot of the stadium. By the way, it's damn near empty. Like I didn't think I I thought that they put fans in there for the purposes of, of the film. So if that's a real game, that speaks to how well or not well that team drew. Nineteen ninety one Yankees still had Mattingly at first, correct? Yeah, he only hit 288 though. Yeah, he had a bad back by then. He back. he was he was plagued by back problems a lot. Um, I'm trying to think if I remember anything else. Was Dave Rigetti still around at that point? Rags? I don't think so. No, he yeah, was probably gone. Later. I mean, this was not it. This is this is the Steinbrenner stuff at its absolute worst because he was still trying to buy guys. Um, Roberto Kelly might have been on that team. He was. Yeah, he played a hundred. He was one of the. One of the better players on that team. I'll I'll just take you a quick tour, and then we'll say goodbye. Bernie Williams, a young Bernie Williams, played 85 games and kind of splashed on the scene a little bit. Uh, Steve Sachs was the second baseman. Hit three oh four that year, 31 steals. Matt Noakes was a pretty good catcher for the Yankees. He had been with Detroit, I think. Pat Kelly, Alvaro Espinosa, Mel Hall, Jesse Barfield, Kevin Maz. Wow. All on this team. Alvaro Espinosa was a Tori former. Tori Lovello. Tori Lovello was on this team. Um, Alvaro Espinosa was a former twin at that point. And Kevin Maz eventually had a cup of coffee here, right? Yes, he did. As one of yeah. the many, many <laughs> first basemen. Scott Stahoviak, Kevin Moss, I think Greg Colburn. Who got an audition to replace Col- yeah, Kirby? Colburn, Greg Colburn. Greg yeah. Colburn had been with Montreal. I haven't heard of ba- barely any of these pitchers. Just like go through Scott them. Sanderson, Tim Leary, Jeff oh, yeah. Johnson, nope. Wade Taylor, Pascal nope. Perez, oh, yeah. Dave Elland, Island. Oof. Um, Island. Right. So Scott Sanderson was, I believe, a former Cub. In fact, I, I think I watched him pitch a bunch on GN in the eighties, and I think he was playing out the string with the, the Yankees. Pascal Pasquel Perez. Is one of the great stories. He was a former Brave at, at that point. He's the pitcher who, in the '80s, was late to a Braves game, and I don't know if he was supposed to start or not. He didn't know, or he couldn't find the exit off the freeway to the stadium. The guy was like a major <laughs> goofball and got lost. I've been there before, and I, I think mean, GPS is super helpful. Well, yeah, oh, GPS saves my ass now. But yeah, that was a bad Yankees team. All right, here's five options for action movie rewind. You yep. guys. Tell me how we want to do this. All okay. right. Snakes on a plane, face off, yeah. which does violate the two hour rule, but I think it's probably worth it. Yeah. Over the top, the Stallone arm wrestling movie. <laughs> Ran- Ransom with Mel Gibson. Give me back my son. And I'm going to throw this one on here, too. I know we said no comic book movie, so we got to be really careful with these, but this one is, this is like pre Marvel and. Batman with Michael Keaton oh, and Jack Nicholson. Dude. That's too good, though, right? I... It is I, really good, but there's I've, a lot I've of got a question about two films. Lot, there's a lot of things to oh, talk about. There's in that so movie. much. Tim Burton dude does such a good job in that movie. But Batman. Okay, so I think Batman and Ransom might violate our rules. You want to get nuts? Because they're both pretty damn good. 
Ransom's good. I've I've, I've never seen Ransom. Uh, I'm not saying it's great. We can I, take it. I saw it in the theater. Um, my inclination, depending on runtime, which I believe is at probably perfect. Snakes on a plane might be glorious. Yeah, I, I'm, that's the first one I was leaning on to is Snakes on a Plane. I've never it, seen it. I, I haven't it would, either. And it, it would cleanse. It's it's funny. It's kind of goofy too. Like I think it would it would help cleanse the palate. Yeah, it would cleanse the, the movie palate. palate is is constipated mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm down for it. So hold Snakes on a second. On a plane. Hold, Snakes wait, on a plane. Wait, one forty six. One forty six. God bless America. All right. But Snakes yes. on a plane yeah. next week. Action movie rewind Thanks, coming Max. back. Thanks for hanging out, Maggie and Judd. Definitely that baseball and Jack. Always come before Hiroko and Jack. Hey, come on now, give me a break. This is my job. Not just job. It's who you are. You said it to me yourself. Always been a ball player. Even before you were a ball player. So go be a ball player. But I'm not glove or bat. You pack up and take along. I am a woman. As an Alliant Energy representative, I really enjoy helping businesses save. Today, I visited a business that asked for a free energy audit. After walking through their facility, I let the customers know how much money and energy they could be saving. Plus, I gave them an action plan detailing how to improve their energy efficiency. I showed them how they could save even more with rebates from Alliant Energy on equipment upgrades. If you are interested in saving energy and money, schedule a free energy audit at AlliantEnergy.com slash energy audit. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.